Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are speaking with Professor R.J.B. Bosworth. Professor Bosworth is Professor of History Emeritus at Jesus College, Oxford. He's acknowledged as one of the leading historians dealing with 19th and 20th century Italian history, and in particular, with the the regime of Benito Mussolini. And today we are speaking about his latest book, Mussolini and Eclipse of Italian Fascism, From Dictatorship to Populism, published by Yale University Press. Welcome, Professor Bosworth. Thank you, Charles. Professor, why did you write this book? Um, Well, I'm I'm getting on. I'm 77, and I... The book is in some ways um, seen in my mind anyway as my last book. I have written quite a few other books that have been about Mussolini in one way or another, but this one has many new angles in terms of my approach to to Mussolini, and I think that a number of them are of contemporary interest. The book was actually ready for publication. It's being proofread, indexed, sub-edited in June um, 2020, but Yale, for reasons that they say are to do with publicity, delayed the publication until March 2021. So the book actually probably fitted into some of the dilemmas that you were having in the United States about President Trump in the summer of last year. Um, and now some of those um, issues may be a little bit put to rest under the new presidency of Biden, but we shall see. Professor, what is the thesis of your book? Well, I don't know that it has a single thesis. I don't think books ever do, do they? But the book um, starts by looking at the fascist, uh, at Mussolini as dictator after 10 years of office. Um, there was a massive public celebration of that event, the so-called Decennale, an, an exhibition in the Via Nazionale in, in Rome. Um, and Mussolini also, it, it coincided with the annunciation of 
um, a, a sort of theory of fascism where Mussolini collaborated with the celebrated philosopher Giovanni Gentile in, in producing a short statement about the meaning of fascism. And many people have used this to um, talk about theories of fascism. My attitude, however, has been to say, yes, well, there was a certain um, degree of, um, uh, of, of, uh, of the effort to find an ideology, a, a coherent ideology in Italy in the first 10 years of the regime. It also had many negative, tyrannical characteristics, a single-party state, an abolition of rival trade unions, censorship of the press and all those familiar matters, the use of secret police. However, perhaps it wasn't um, what we readily understand as small f fascism now, in other words, the sort of word that was being bandied around in the United States about Trump um, last year, in, in my opinion, very, very loosely and not very uh, effectively. What the, the coloration that was changed after 1932 was, of course, the arrival of Adolf Hitler. And I think that made Hitler and Nazism made a very great difference to what we think about Italian fascism. What do you mean exactly when you say on page four of the book, quote, history is an unsettled, brittle argument without end, unquote? Um, well, what I mean by that is that history, I mean, that, that is actually a quotation from the celebrated Dutch historian Peter Gale. Um, who um, wrote a book, a wonderful book called Napoleon For and Against, um, that he allegedly composed to a considerable degree in memory while in a German prisoner of war camp during the Second World War. And it was a book that was asserting, I think, the meaning, or at least my understanding of the meaning of democracy or perhaps the meaning of social democracy in that history couldn't produce um, single objective definitive books. It's not like um, simple mathematics and being able to say one plus one equals two, um, history produces points of view, produces arguments. And in a democracy, there must always be rival interpretations of, of past events. And it's in the debate about those um, different interpretations that our democracies survive and flourish. In the book you have at the beginning... Uh, an extensive discussion of different regime types in 1920s Europe. From our current vantage point, which would you say came closest ideologically and uh, concretely to Mussolini's Italy? I think that's a very difficult question. I mean, I, I, the point that I was really trying to make there is, is that now, in, in, in contemporary parlance, what is it's always assumed that the regime that's most similar to um, it had the, the Italian fascist dictatorship was the German Nazi dictatorship. However, it's always done in a way where the Nazis are number one. The Nazis are much the more impressive, the, the more uh, evil, um, and the Italians are a sort of bad joke almost, following on behind the, the feeble ally, um, the, the, the laughable side of the ultimate evil of Nazism. And I think that's an incredibly inadequate way of trying to understand Mussolini as a person or the fascist dictatorship. And so the fact that Italian writers see parallels between um, Mussolini and fascism and, say, Kemal Ataturk's regime in Turkey, which, after all, had a much higher death count of Turks than Mussolini ever did 
of Italians if you forget about those killed in the aggressive Italian wars, and I might come back to that later. Um, uh, FDR, for example, the, the Roosevelt New Deal was seen to have major parallels with um, the, the Italian enhancement of the state. And you, you can just go on listing these, the, the, the more obvious um, dictatorships that exist in Europe or authoritarian regimes of one kind or another, Pilsudski in Poland, um, what, what eventually happens in Spain or what happened in the 1920s with Primo de Rivera, etc., etc., etc. But the real point is to try to separate the Italian regime from an automatic paralleling with the Nazi regime and a placing of it as, as, as some sort of bad joke compared with the compared with the Nazi regime. It does seem to me that in terms of historical memory, that when we're talking about dictatorships, Hitler rules our memory, really. Everyone, indeed, you can find historian after historian, and I cite some of them in the book, who say that, well, every dictator is about to turn into a Hitler. And I guess one of the other fundamental theses in the book is that that's wrong, I think, because Hitler was a very odd person, um, um, I think a very fanatical person, um, determined in his extraordinary enmity, which he thought was scientific, however much it was pseudoscience, of course, um, his enmity for Judeo-Bolshevism, Judeo-Bolshevism. And Mussolini, I think, is a much more ordinary sort of dictator. And so if you are looking around at dictators, who you may well think are, are, are people who you'd rather not have to dinner, um, they are much more likely to be like Mussolini than they are to be like Hitler. How did the Italian monarchy and nobility interact with the Mussolini regime? Well, the Italian monarchy and um, the nobility, um, there, there is a segment in the book about that, and they certainly um, cohabited, is that the right word? Cohabited quite cheerfully. They're one of the more important themes in the book, uh, it, uh, which is, is a theme that's directed against um, metropolitan obsessed Eurocentric, uh, a metropolitan obsessed Eurocentric historiography that thinks that everything that matters about um, interwar, interwar Europe was in Europe. But when the, the Italian regime had a body count of about a million people, about half of them were, were its soldiers and some civilians who were killed in its aggressive wars. It's a terrible tally. Although, of course, liberal Italy, the previous regime, had entered the First World War aggressively, and then more than 700,000 Italian soldiers and civilians died in that war. So if one was going to do a rough um, mathematical parallel in terms of the First World War versus the Second World War, the First World War is a more terrible and death-dealing event for the Italians, a liberal war by contrast with the fascist war of the Second World War. The other half of the deaths, I mean, there's also, of course, the appalling Italian participation eventually in the Holocaust and something over 7,000 Italian Jews die um, because of Italy's policies in, in following the German lead um, in, in, in massacring uh, Jews, um, most, almost all the deaths occurring after 1943, in fact. But the other half a million, basically, are people who are killed um, in Africa, in one part or other of Africa, in other words, in the Italian Empire, where the monarchy and um, most of elite Italy is as active participants as the fascist regime is, I think, in Libya, 
in Ethiopia, um, where, of course, there's a war in 1935, a brutal colonial war. And one of the other new theses in the book, or, or controversial theses in the book, is certainly my comment that when you're looking around for parallels to this dictatorship's behavior um, compared with other regimes, if you could set aside Hitler for a moment, then perhaps what you should look at is the parallels of Italian, Italy's belated, there's a wonderful adjective that's often used about the Italian Empire, a tatatamalian empire. That made parallels between this empire and the other more established empires of Britain, of France, of the United States, Portugal, Spain, Belgium, um, or every European country, really, where again, there's a, there's, there's a terrible death toll, a lot of it perhaps rather earlier than 1935 and, uh, and so on, but nonetheless, it can continue. In the Second World War, one thinks of the Bengal famine, for example, that Churchill certainly did nothing much to stop. One thinks of policies in Kenya um, immediately after 1945, where, according to an American historian, more than 100,000 Kenyans died. If you think of French policies in Algeria, and certainly if you think of the um, authoritarian regime's policies in Spain and Portugal in Africa after 1945, again, perhaps there are parallels with the sorts of behaviour that fascist Italy and um, establishment Italy approved of in Libya and Ethiopia. How, if at all, did the fall of the Soviet Union impact on Italian understanding of Mussolini's regime? Mm. That's, that's an interesting question. Um, what um, happened in the short term um, was that um, a sort of rough consensus that had existed in Italy um, in favour of what was what we tend to call nowadays the myth of the resistance. In other words, the idea that um, the, the fascists were a minority, really, that they um, the great majority of the population were really Italiani, brava gente. They were nice people at heart, and therefore they had never really been fascists. Um, but um, in the 1990s, um, I guess. Um, with Berlusconi being a, 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 a typical um, speaker of words about the matter, um, there was a, a return of anti-anti-fascist historiography where some of the people who'd gone on fighting for fascism in 1943, 1944, 1945 found a voice and justified themselves. One of the interesting things about Italy, of course, after 1945, is that a, a very considerable admiration for sympathy for Mussolini survived among Italians and one of the questions that's asked over and over again in the book is how could that be if this regime was so terrible it's not a situation which one has found in Germany after 1945 in, in any serious sense but in Italy also in 2021 there are still plenty of people who admire Mussolini and think that the only thing that was really the matter with the regime was the fact that um, it, for one reason or another, fought on the German side in the Second World War and also participated, as I said, in the appalling nadir of human behavior in the Holocaust. Uh, does Croce's uh, parenthesis concept of Mussolini's place in Italian history um, still find favor with Italian scholars? Um, I, think it's, I think that debate sort of lost most of its luster um, 
certainly it's not. I mean, I'm, my views are completely opposed to it since I see um, a major continuity between liberal Italy and fascist Italy. And indeed, Italy after 1945 in many ways, except that Italy's in 1945 had the good fortune from an Italian point of view of stopping being a great power and therefore um, have been relieved of some of the pressures which come upon you when you are a great power. At one point in the book, you mentioned that modern Italian history is, relatively speaking, undersubscribed outside of Italy itself. Why is that the case, do you think? Well, I think it's because Italy's not a great power and because the Italian language is a minority language. It's not one of the, the great global languages. Um, and so compared with, uh, um, with, 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 the, with, with France, say, with Britain, um, with the United States, and also, I suppose, with Germany, given the, the, the fact that we all have to, in some way or another, wrangle with the idea that humankind went to Auschwitz, um, that they, they are all much more likely to have uh, undergraduate courses full of students than the course on modern Italy. I mean, in many ways, actually, there's more likely to be students enrolled in a course on Renaissance Italy rather than in the modern period. It's always the least of the historiographical powers. In the book, you quote the American uh, historian on uh, Soviet Union, Richard Pipes, statement that in pre-July uh, pre 1914, quote, no prominent socialist resembled Lenin more than Mussolini, unquote. Uh, I couldn't quite tell whether you agreed or disagreed with this uh, uh, statement. Um, well, I, it's, I mean, I think I, I quoted Pipes as, uh, as a demonstration of the way in which um, it's, it, it, it's easy for people to try to push a sort of simple totalitarianist line, which of course blends the um, communist regime in, in, uh, in, in the USSR with um, the fascist regimes of Hitler and Mussolini. I, I don't think this is a very convincing argument. Um, but um, And so no, I, I, I don't agree with Pipe. I mean, Mussolini is a socialist before 1914. It seems to me that the key um, factor in his um, in his attitudes and his behaviour was that he was a, an ambitious young man. He was an ambitious young man from um, a, of a family which had declined socially, and he was anxious really for it to rise again. Um, and I think a lot of the ideology that he in, in, in engaged in was not necessarily a matter of simple belief. And so the, any parallel with Hitler is just, well, you can parallel him with anyone you like, really. You could probably parallel him with Woodrow Wilson if you wanted to. I see. Uh, what do you mean exactly when you say in the book, quote, fascism was transformed into populism and Professor Mussolini to merely its charismatic chief and warlord, unquote. Well, I'm glad you've got to this question, Charles, because I think this is one of the other key arguments in the book, really, because let, let me just go over the, over the case. The case is that once there was Nazism, once there was Hitler and Nazism, Germany much more powerful, a much more real great power, much stronger economically, much stronger militarily, then the, um, the, 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 the formula, which had sort of survived Italy quite well in the 1920s, although with no doubt considerable cost for, for, for quite a few Italians, um, became out of date. And so what I say there is that in a, in a curious way, 
1932-1933, Italy lost an implied war with Germany. It became Germany's inferior. It turned into that um, that situation that I was describing earlier, where it was simply uh, an inferior version of Nazism, a laughable Italian, Italians can't fight, all those sorts of cliches, version of Nazism. Uh, and it was it, it was defined by Nazism. It was defined, for example, by anti-Semitism. It did, of course, become anti-Semitic, but I don't think it was defined by um, by anti-Semitism. And of course, when it came to a, a death toll, then um, perhaps it killed a hundred thousand um, Arabs and Berbers in Libya. Perhaps I mean the, the figures are shonky, but still three hundred thousand, four hundred thousand people in Ethiopia. Um, so it was a murderous regime in Africa, really. And I think Mussolini was also always talking about um, about making gains in a way that sounded faintly 19th century rather than... He wasn't a racial scientist. He didn't have um, Hitler's um, um, belief, in deep belief in, pseudo, in the pseudoscience of race. Would it be true to say that the removal of Dino Grandi from the foreign ministry in 1932 represented the beginnings of a radicalization of Italian foreign policy? Um, well, I mean, I certainly wouldn't um, want to write Grandi in as a good guy or a um, bravo Italiano, bravo Italiano or something or other. Um, so that probably my short answer to your question is, is no. When I, I didn't really get around to talking about the populist side of your question, and I should do, is what I think happens after 1933 is that the regime has an outpouring of publication, seemingly ideological publication, by its tame intellectuals. But in reality, what happens more and more is that it's not the ideology that matters. It's the dictator that matters. Mussolini's charisma becomes more and more the dominant thing. And you can find plenty of um, information. The historian Paul Corners um, worked on it um, in, in the past to show that out there in the, in, in the provinces, the population is pretty browned off with fascists. They, they, they're browned off with fascist party leaders. They're corrupt. Um, they, they behave badly sexually, etc., etc. So they eat in the best restaurants, you name it. Um, but they love Mussolini. They admire Mussolini. Mussolini is what matters. And I think that also helps to explain the situation after 1945. So one gets to, a, gets to that sort of populist solution where um, the regime's strength is in, in, in Mussolini's alleged charisma, in, in the portrayal of a grand individual who can solve, every pop, who can solve absolutely every problem even though, of course, he can't, and he himself, who's not entirely stupid, half knows that, I think. Um, and so in that sense, I think there are parallels with the sort of populism of Trump and of plenty of other people in our contemporary world, where the ideology is probably rather rather vague and confused. I mean, if you want to call Trump a fascist, you have big problems, don't you? Because a fascist wants to increase the power of the state, whereas I guess Trump wanted to increase the power of the market, didn't he? He wanted to deregulate, he wanted to reduce taxes, and, and, and those things are, don't fit well with the, 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 the ordinary definition of fascism where everything is for the state, nothing's against the state, nothing's outside the state. Um, 
And so in that sense, I do think the regime becomes a sort of hollow, hollow, charismatic populist regime, which goes from one, um, one short-term decision about what it should do to another, um, engaging in war in Africa, trying to give it a fascist gloss, although in many ways behaving like a 19th century European power, I think, and so on and on into the Second World War and the military disaster, unprepared, of course, in any sensible way to, to fight a, a modern war uh, after 1940. So for you, Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia was part of this populist turn? Yes. I mean, there is the slogan, Andare decisamente verso il popolo, at the end of 1931, and um, always rather linked with the um, the um, arrival in the secretaryship of the fascist party of Achille Starace, um, who then goes through the 30s, and who I guess most historians would um, agree uh, engages in a party policy of sort of bread and circuses of I mean, I think of the extraordinary fascist party hierarch games where they persuaded middle-aged men who were getting paunches to um, jump over, um, jump through fiery hoops or, or jump over upended bayonets and that sort of thing and claimed that that was all making fascist men of them. Um, so it, they, they are going decisively towards the people, but doing so by emptying an ideology that perhaps had meant something in the 1920s. I think that Botai, who's 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 a worrying man in many ways, but who tries to be an intellectual fascist minister, always emphasised that it was corporatism that was meant to be at the centre of, of of a fascist dictatorship, at the centre of a fascist regime, but that it was somehow hollowed out by Starace and by the policies of the 1930s. What's he, what he perhaps wasn't seeing was the way in which what we would now call populism was taking over. And was the um, intervention in the Spanish Civil War part of the same populist turn? Well, the intervention in the Spanish Civil War was so typical behaviour of Italy, the least of the great powers. I think in many ways it was Chano. Um, it was Mussolini's son-in-law's war. I mean, Mussolini was involved in a deep personal crisis when the key events happened because his younger daughter, Anna Maria, had polio and um, seemed likely to die. So I don't know that Mussolini's attention was fully fixed on um, the immediate events of, of uh, Spain, but Italy sort of stumbled, I think, into the, into the Spanish Civil War and um, then, of course, found everyone making jokes about how incompetent the Italians were at waging war and adding to the problems of, uh, of Italy as a Tatatamalian great power. Would you uh, agree with those scholars who posit that the Italian defeat at the Battle of uh, Guadalajara uh, was a severe blow to the regime's um, prestige internally? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that's that's um, one, one would have to really do a very specific study of secret police reports. I mean, what is clear, and I have done quite a lot of work on um, on on um, police um, uh, recording of what ordinary Italians are saying in 1936, 1937, 1938, and what you find is that they are by no means automatically accepting. 
um, the regime's line on things, except that they're likely to be in favour of Mussolini. And again, I think that um, comes back to charisma and populism. Um, but you can find plenty of Italians being arrested um, for saying something like, well, why on earth are we going off to Ethiopia, say, when um, why shouldn't the Ethiopians have their own land? Let's do something more in terms of welfare here. Because, of course, the fascist regime in the 1920s and most of the rhetoric about the corporate state did promise that this would be a welfarist regime which would help Italians get out of poverty. But many Italians, obviously, especially in the South and especially among the peasantry, remained in desperate poverty. And there's a massive contradiction there. Uh, what was the rationale of the anti-Semitic laws of 1938? I presume you did not agree with the concept that it was in, per se intrinsic to fascism. That's right. I, I, I don't. I mean, Mussolini was a journalist, um, and he uh, wrote about very many things, and he was perfectly capable of saying one thing on Monday and a, the something that was the reverse of that on Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, what you do find, I think, is that there are two key influences in what then turns into the anti-Semitic, the awful anti-Semitic legislation after 1938. Um, one is the model of Nazi Germany again, the fact that you've lost the war. The de facto war with Nazi Germany and this much more powerful state is getting drafting its own more and more terrible anti-Semitic legislation. And it's being um, imitated by Poland, by Romania, by other um, European states who are friends of yours or with whom you don't have particularly bad relations, etc., etc. The second thing is Ethiopia and the fact that Italians um, show a, depressing, a depressing readiness from the regime's point of view to want to... Um, to, to want to engage in, in, in um, relationships with people in Ethiopia um, in, in a way that um, seems to demean them by comparison, say, with, with the British who know how to keep a stiff upper lip when they're in Africa. And there is a, there is a rather lovely book on um, Italian immigrants in Ethiopia in the, in, after 1935 and how they behave and also um, how they think of themselves which again perhaps demonstrates how um, partial their um, ideologization as, as fascist is that they want a comfortable job. They'd rather run a bar than um, go and engage in, um, in killing raids of Ethiopians. Um, and the, the regime is also not very good in providing housing. And Oh, it just goes on and on and on, really, these, these issues of... Um, of the complications of behaviour in the 1930s compared with what the regime says. And, of course, the other thing that happens is that Mussolini never goes to Ethiopia. So members of the royal family, I mean, eventually, of course, the Duke of Aosta becomes the viceroy of Ethiopia. Um, members of the royal family fight in Ethiopia and then uh, um, the, 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 the head of the uh, sort of secondary dinasty or potential secondary dinasty of the Savoy family um, becomes the, the viceroy of Ethiopia. And when you see pictures of him, and the book does have a rather sweet one of him in Massawa in 1940, I think, he looks so like some member of the British royal family who's wandering around some African country or 
or, or even my own Australia, where after all the Duke gets shoved in as Governor General at the end of the Second World War. Uh, you say, quote, frightened realism drove Italian participation uh, into the Axis just as much as ideology did, unquote. Why is that? Well, you always have to remember that Italy, Italy's conquests in its war of aggression in the First World War included the um, Sud Tyrol, included the Trentino Alto Adige, where quite a considerable amount of the population was, by most definitions of the term, German. And so Italy um, was a country that wasn't completely different from, say, Czechoslovakia or Poland or other places in, in, in Europe who, when the Nazis were having their own peculiar blend of scientific racism and Wilsonian self-determination, in other words, wanting to bring all Germans home to the Reich, um, then there was no reason to think that they wouldn't want to bring these people home to the Reich too. And of course, eventually there's a, a, an agreement, a population transfer agreement, which is perhaps the first experiment in some of the appalling population transfers that go on during the course of the Second World War. The other thing that's different about Italy is that this, this, this country still in many ways, I think, behaving like a 19th century great power. If it had been driven by racial ideology, then there was one obvious place where you could find lots and lots of Italians. And, and that was, of course, the United States or Argentina, North and South America, where um, in 1913, 873,000 Italians emigrated. Now, massive pools of people who were Italians there. And so if Mussolini had been Hitler, he should have wanted to have urgent war against the United States and Argentina in order to bring these people home to the Reich, in order to annex New York, Chicago and Buenos Aires. Now, these are ridiculous sounding um, suggestions, but in a way, it's not different from um, the Nazi thrust to the East and the idea that they're sort of clearing out all the Slavs as well as murdering all the Jews and will eventually have their own um, version of a wild East, perhaps one could call it that, in all the territories um, that are west of the Urals. So I suppose your last answer explains why you disagree fundamentally with McGregor Knox, who tends to privilege ideology in Italian yes. foreign policy under Mussolini. Yes, I mean, Knox, Knox and a number of, probably the mainstream of, of, uh, of Anglo-Saxon historians of Italian foreign policy between the wars like to see it as a simple story from bad beginnings and, and um, almost as though it's predetermined. I mean, Knox basically says that in 1919, Mussolini had already made up his mind and was about to enter the Second World War on the Nazi side. That seems to me to be... Um, well, anyway, highly arguable and perhaps a gross exaggeration. Certainly, there's a massive recent book, um, what it must be, 1,500 pages or so by the Italian historian Francesco Lefebvre Dovidio on um, fascist foreign policy through the 1920s, which argues the absolute reverse of that and sees um, fascist foreign policy at that time as basically just continuing its tendency to accept that Britain is its most important influence um, through the 1920s and that any um, Mussolinian bellicosity of language is for domestic consumption only. Um, it is, of course, certainly true that the Italian dictatorship 
doesn't go to war with anybody until 1935. So for more than half its period in office, it is actually at peace, even though it might be sounding rather reluctantly so if you listen to Mussolini's speeches. From reading the book, I got the impression that if Salandra and Sonino had uh, been in power in May, June 1940, they would have uh, behaved almost exactly the same way as Mussolini did at that time. Well, I mean, you can't, of course, do this virtual history. I mean, you perhaps can if you're Neil Ferguson or something. But, um, I, I mean, I guess I would probably agree with you that had there been some other, had Grandi been Italian um, prime minister or something or other, in the circumstances of May, June 1940, where it looks as though Germany has won the war and where you can support Germany and then ideally there'll be a peace conference shortly after and at the peace conference you can betray Germany, you can side with Germany's enemies and you can try and get yourself some extra gain in Chad or Niger or who knows where. That's traditional Italian foreign policy, it seems to me, and not an ideological foreign policy. In your conclusion, why do you say the following? Quote, it is unconvincing to claim that Trump and the European populists are fascist, unquote. Well, I think for the reasons that we've been discussing, really, um, Charles, but um, certainly fascist with a capital F, I suppose, um, in, in terms of whatever it was. I mean, I, I, I said this before, that um, Trump is, 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 a, is a believer in the market, the market rules. Perhaps you could almost claim that Trump and many people in the United States are market totalitarians. They believe that everything should be for the market. Nothing should be against the market. No one should be outside the market. Whereas the Italian fascist regime replaced the market with the word state. And, and, and I don't think you can see Trump as someone, I mean, he's confused about most things anyway, isn't he? Because he's a charismatic populist. But um, that, that he really is wanting somehow to enhance the state. There are perhaps some little parallels, the, 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 the protectionism, and Italy does pursue protectionist economic policies in the 1930s, but then so do a number of other European states, and that was rather a reversal of the liberal economic policies of much of um, fascist Italy's um, planning in the 1920s, and on and on and on it goes. I think it's, it, I mean, I think what we're talking about there, and this is a point that I've been making throughout our conversation, is that we're talking about the ghost of the Adolf, of Adolf Hitler. People who say Trump's a fascist want to argue that he's a bad man, that he's evil, that he's going to make America a really horrible country. And the best way to do that is to pin Hitler on him, to pin um, the, 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 the abyss that the world took um, in, in, and certainly in terms of Nazi planning, what would have been even worse if they'd won the Second World War somehow. And I don't think that really is, is, is a serious way of understanding, understanding Trump or Duterte or, um, or, or Hungary or Poland or any of these other places that have right-wing populist leaders at the moment. But thinking about Mussolini and his combination of evil, his his, his, his evil, which is lesser, but it's still evil. I mean, I, the, 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 this regime is responsible for the premature deaths of about a million people. It is tyrannical. It does um, set up a one-party state. It does censor the press. 
it does destroy free trade unions and on and on on you can go. And it, it's that that where I think the sensible historical parallels are and not with Hitler. If you wanted people to take one thing away from this book, Professor, what would it be? Well, I think it would be that. Um, don't be too obsessed with Adolf Hitler. Um, but on the other hand, be wary of, of, of populism and be wary of um, dictators. On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Bosworth, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Bosworth. Okay, thank you.